So here's a story I've heard dozens of times. You have this senior staff member who needs to be managed out, and everyone knows it. But instead of addressing the problem, you hire someone underneath that person to support the poor performer. It feels like no time at all, and that rock star you hired resigns. A new opportunity they just couldn't pass up. But we know the truth. Gallup tells us that close to 60% of employees who leave are not leaving because of compensation. The main reason? Managers are simply not investing in meeting staff needs as valued employees and human beings. As author and today's guest Michael Bungay-Stanier says in his new book, people don't leave organizations. They leave managers. This new book, How to Work with Almost Anyone, will be the foundation, the anchor of our conversation. And its foundational assumption is that work success is intrinsically tied to the relationships we build, cultivate, and nurture, and that most of the time we leave the health and fate of these relationships to chance. How crazy is that, right? That's why Michael wrote this book. He believes it's time to commit to intentionally design and manage the way you work with people to actively build what he calls the BPR, the best possible relationship. Can you imagine if your relationship with your employee or your supervisor was safe, vital, and repairable? You don't have to imagine. Today, Michael will share a very clear and compelling recipe. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Michael Bungay-Stanier helps people know they're awesome and that they're doing great. He's best known for The Coaching Habit, the best-selling coaching book of the century, and already recognized as a classic. His new book I referenced, How to Work with almost anyone, does what it says on the label. Michael was a Rhodes Scholar. He dabbles in the ukulele. So do I. He's Australian. I'm not. And lives in Toronto, (laughs) Canada. I've been there. Learn more about Michael at www.mbs.works. Michael, it's great to have you back on my podcast. What I totally love about your work is that You work to solve workplace problems with clear, compelling, simple, and actionable strategies. Your books are easy to digest, not because they're overly simplistic, hardly, but because you don't mince words, you get to the point, and the points you make really stick. So I am delighted you've written another book so that I had the excuse (laughs) to have you back. Welcome. Joan, what a very generous and kind introduction. Thank you. You're right. I... I have a a mantra when I'm writing a book, which is what's the shortest book I can write that's still useful? Because so many books are so long and there are so many words and there's so much fluff. And I'm trying to unweird stuff for people. 
you know, the coaching habit, I think, unweirds the whole idea of coaching. So totally. everybody can kind of go, oh, if that's coaching, I can give that a shot. And here I'm trying to unweird this idea of how do you actively manage the health of your working relationships? Because it's a bit daunting. It's a bit hard. But I'm trying to give people an easier way into that. So you're kind of north of Blinklist and south <laughs> and south of a 300-page book. That's a lovely way to put it. Yeah, I'm like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, because I've written a book, I always love to know, what compelled you to write about this topic? What was, was there igniting incident? Sort of what drove you to do it? Because you need a drive to write a book, regardless of how short or long it is. Yeah, it's mostly a miserable experience writing a book, <laughs> even if you like writing books. And I, and I do quite like writing books. Well, there's a, there wasn't an inciting incident so much, Joan, but part of what I realized is my best contribution to the world is to be a writer. Like of all the things that I can nice. do and I can... I'm a speaker and I can coach and I can facilitate and I can design learning and training and I can do all of that pretty well. But the thing that is most distinctive in what I do is is how I write and how I try and move things from complex to simplicity on the other side of of complicated. Which is, and, by the way, no small feat and a and a definitely a superpower. Oh, thank you. So I actually sit with the question: What's my best idea? What's my best guess? for the next book I should write, because I've got all sorts of ideas. I, I have ideas all the time. A vast majority of them are not very good ideas, <laughs> but which are the ones <laughs> that keep showing up? And this idea of actively managing a working relationship, having a conversation about how we work together before you have a conversation on what are we working on, well, that seed got planted well, 30 years ago by a writer called Peter Block, who I'm sure you know of as well. Mm -hmm. And he calls it social contracting. And I'd yeah. been using this tool with my clients, with my board when I had a board, with my team, with my direct reports, but also with my peers. And I kind of fine-tuned how I thought this could work best. And I just realized the power of this tool. And I'm like, you know, if I got one tool that I could teach that I haven't taught yet, it might be this whole idea of a keystone conversation in service of how do you build the best possible relationship with the most important people with whom you work. So you say that we should all be shooting for this best possible relationship. And I mean, there's a part of me that says, yeah, okay, so who doesn't <laughs> want that, right? Right. Isn't it something comes naturally and builds over time? Well, if you're lucky, it comes naturally. And if you're lucky, it builds over time. But I think the odds are against you. I mean, it's entropy. Stuff gets cracked, stuff gets damaged. And the difference is passively waiting and hoping to see if it all, or, you know, cross your fingers and hope that it all pl plays out well versus actively saying, what can I do to make this relationship it's the best version of this relationship? So, you know, your relationships, your working relationships probably fit on a bell curve. You've got some and one end where you're like, I love working with this person. It's fantastic. <laughs> they get me, I get them. We, 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 you know, amplify each other's strengths. We, we kind of navigate the tricky things with grace and ease. Brilliant. You probably got some relationships, hopefully not too many at the other end where you're like, oh my goodness, this person is an energy vampire. <laughs> they, suck, <laughs> they suck my life away. If I write a blog post called The Energy Vampire, I'm I'm totally crediting you. 
Carry well, no, on you, there, what, Michael. You have to credit what we do in the shadows, which is a fabulous TV show, which is where I got the idea of energy vampire okay. from. But anyway, you know, there are these people who you're like, you just can't crack it. No matter what you do, no matter how good your intentions and perhaps their intentions, it just feels like a kind of sucky relationship. Yeah. And then most of your relationships are somewhere in the middle. They're, they're decent. They're pretty good. You get along most of the time. But each one of those relationships has a, a potential. And I reckon whether you're at one end of the bell curve or the other or in the middle, there's a way that you can live more fully up to the potential of that relationship. And it takes actively managing it. It takes you going, how do I be the person who reaches out and says, let's figure out how we work best together for your sake and for my sake and for the mission of our organization's sake? I I keep coming back to this word intention so Mm -hmm. often. People want me to come come to the word mindfulness, but I have I have I'm a fidgety skeptic, as Dan Harris. <laughs> I can calls see me. that. Yeah, I'm watching uh, you on video, and I'm like, <laughs> you, you, I, I'm getting that vibe just hanging out with you. <laughs> but I'm but I'm telling you what you're what you're proposing here, what you're evangelizing about, yeah. is to enter into a relationship with intention. And I this is something that I talk a lot about in with nonprofit leaders who are constantly racing with everything feeling quite urgent because usually everything is quite urgent. Yeah. And so intentionality is a little bit is a scarcer commodity than I right. than I than I than I think is good for a thriving nonprofit. So I love this notion of being intentional about building the best possible relationship. So you talk about three characteristics of the best possible right. relationship. Can you tease them out for me briefly? Yeah, yeah. So I think the best possible relationships have three characteristics, just as you say. It's not A plus B plus C. They're three characteristics that exist in tension with each other because all best things, all best systems have three principles that are in tension with each other. So I think a best possible relationship needs to be safe and vital and repairable. So let me unpack each one of those three things for you, Joan. Safe is the best place to start. And if you've heard of any one of those three, it's probably about safety within relationships, psychological safety, because Amy Edmondson, the OG on psychological safety, has made it really clear what a significant role this plays in team and organizational success. You know, Google with Project Oxygen and Project Aristotle talking about how teams and managers thrive. Psychological safety is a key part of the of the characteristics that they mention. And safety feels an ability to not be in a place of fear. So being able to say things and not fear the repercussions of it. That's how Amy Edmondson defines it. Yep. It could even go a little beyond that. You know, Deloitte recently did a a study around something they call coverage. And coverage is this idea of do you get to show up as yourself or do you have to hide some parts of yourself? Yes. And there's a it's a really significant number of people who feel they can't bring their whole selves to work. More so as, as soon as you move away from people like me, you know, straight white men, old man, <laughs> I'm like, I, I, I'm, I'm more comfortable with bringing my whole self to work, but I've got a whole bunch of structures around me that allow that when you're racialized or gender or whatever it might be. There's all sorts of you know, as people of color will say, code switching that goes on so you fit in and you don't bring your whole self to work. So safety is about an awareness of that. Yes. 
Yes, and, and, and I, I can say as a very quick aside, as a member of the LGBT community, I know about yeah. covering and I know about authenticity and the distinction between, I, you know, I've seen it and read lots about it, uh, about the difference in job satisfaction and productivity of someone of a marginalized community who is able to be authentic versus people who are not. And I often say that LGBT people kind of model authenticity for others who don't come out about all kinds of things. Right. Right. That's exactly right. So let's move on to vital. Yeah, so vital, you know, I love that vital has two meanings. Vital meaning essential, but vital also meaning enlivening. Sort yes. of makes your, your heart beat a little faster and you, you know, kind of in a good way kind of get sweaty hands and kind of go, well, this is exciting. Yes. So vital is about a relationship that invites people to be brave, to step to the edge of who they are and what they know, to have adventures, to be courageous, to take some risks. And you can see that safe and vital actually are in a dance with each other. Yes. There's this tension between them. Yep. You can have a relationship that is so safe that it is deadening, that there's a kind of like, you can't go to the edges because it's all about safety. You can have a relationship that's so vital, so kind of dangerous, that failure is catastrophic because when it breaks, and it will, you know, there's not that safety to kind of balance it. So in any best possible relationship, we're like, what's the balance between safety and vitality that we need to strike? Hmm. Interesting. I also think about, as you describe, a vital relationship. It's one that when you are in a meeting with that person, that that meeting is fueling rather than depleting. Yeah, exactly. It's like Marcus Buckingham talks about strengths. Yes. Strength isn't just what you're good at. It's what enlivens you. It's what gives you vitality and what's giving you energy. Yep. Repairable. Yeah. So the third attribute is repairable, which is, it, it, it stems from this insight your best relationships and your worst relationships and the ones in the middle will go off the rails at some stage. And an ability to say, how do we fix this so we get back on track is an extraordinarily powerful role to play in any working relationship. And in my research for this, I read a lot of people who write you know, just about the health of relationships. So people like Esther Perel and Dan Siegel and Terry Real, all terrific authors, all with not all the same, but kind of different, but kind of uh, aligned points of view. And one of the things that was really clear is how poor we are at repairability. You know, something gets slightly dinged and we kind of go, oh, (laughs) I'm hurt. I feel a bit broken. I feel like this relationship's deteriorating a little bit. And you just kind of assume that that's the way to go because it's it's hard to speak up about being hurt. It's hard to be the person who builds a bridge to say, let's see if we can get back on track and get back to health in terms of this relationship. So safe, vital, and repairable are the three attributes that make up a best possible relationship. And yes, they're in a dance with each other, right? I, If a relationship with a colleague goes off the rails, I need to have some element of safety, but right. I need to feel some element of safety to be able to say either, wait, hold on, that that actually did not work for me. That's right. Or can I please tell you how that made me feel? Or, you know, not to sound, you know, too woo-woo or too therapeutic. Like, let's just face it. There's a lot of therapeutic techniques in buildings and sustaining and nurturing relationships. And 
how you do it depends on the conversation you've had with the person you're trying to fix this with. So how you and I might repair a glitch that's happened in our working relationships might happen a different way because we're both fast, we're both slightly skeptical, we're both slightly jittery, as you said earlier on. I'm like, me too. <laughs> so <laughs> we probably do it in a in, in a different way because like I, I don't need so much of the blanket of a therapy language to kind yes. of repair stuff. And I'm like, so, but we figure that out between us. But right. with somebody, for instance, on my team, I'm thinking of somebody in particular who has much more of that kind of, I need that kind of language and pattern around therapeutic exchange. I'd repair with her in a very different way. But that's the nature of this. There's not a generic way about you showing up. It is a co-created plan to say, how do we build the best possible relationship together. So you talk about building and designing this best possible relationship through something you call the keystone conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think by virtue of the title of it, I think I know it's it's a a big conversation (laughs) and an important conversation that's keystone. Can it happen at any point in your trajectory of a relationship or is it best to happen as someone first comes in the door? Yeah. It's a little bit like that saying the best time to plant an acorn was 20 years ago, but the second best time to plant an acorn is today. Okay. Which is like, you can pull back and say, let's have a conversation about how we're working together anywhere through the arc of a relationship. Now, Joan, I'm going to say this just because it's on people's minds as they listen to us talk. Somebody's at least one person is thinking, isn't this going to be awkward? And I just want to say, yes, it is going to be an awkward conversation. Certainly the first time for you and the first time for that other person, it's like this doesn't happen very often. And it's a bit unusual to step out of the the urgency of everyday work because there's plenty to do and there's plenty to worry about and there are plenty of fires to put out and there are plenty of things to be, you know, to be focused on. To step back and go, let's take a beat and talk about you and me and how we're working together. I, I'm, so I love that. I love that. I will also say, and we'll come back to it in a little bit, we actually put your book to the test yesterday with a brand new employee. I love and this. And as part of onboarding. And I, yeah. I talked to the manager and Christy indicated no awkwardness at all. Perfect. But yeah. an actual... Wow, like a receptivity (laughs) to it where both people benefited from the conversation. So depending on when you, it it might, if you get further along, it might be, why why are we doing, like, what are we doing this for? But as part of onboarding, it seemed to actually be lovely and organic and welcoming. And and give the structure to that. But I'm also going to say, Joan, that I love that that's onboarding and a manager to a new team member is the most obvious moment when you would do this very conversation. I'm meeting a new vendor this afternoon. Mm. Like they're going to work with me to kind of help produce SEO stuff and help support <laughs> the launch of the book. SEO I don't understand stuff. it at I all. like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, honestly, I've tried to work with agencies like this before. And for the most part, these have not been great relationships. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't understood what's going on. They haven't understood me. And it's kind of deteriorated. I'll be using these same questions or variations on them in the setup with this company Fantastic. to say, when you've worked with clients and you've they've been really good for you, what happened? What did they do? What did you do? When you've worked with clients and they've kind of sucked a bit, 
what did what happened? What did they do? What did you do? And I'm going to answer that as well. When I've worked with an agency and it's been great, what happened? What did they do? What did I do? When it didn't work, what did they do? What did I do? It's anytime you've got a relationship that goes beyond it being a transaction, Yep. it might be worth investing in the robustness of that relationship. I, I, I totally love that. And in fact, it's funny when I... I always interview potential coaching clients because I coach CEOs of nonprofits. That's right. And I know that I have found someone I want to coach when they ask me, who's yeah. who's your ideal coaching client? Like, That's how do right. you know that you've had an impact? It's like, right. first of all, it actually is a very self-reflecting kind of question, right? right? It helps me to focus on what I want out of my working yeah. relationships with my coaching clients, and it gives them insight into me. And so these are the kinds of questions that that are so incredibly helpful. So I want to I want to talk about the Keystone conversation sure. and the elements of it. I just want to for those people who may be joining or the, the, running on the elliptical or something. I just <laughs> we want to salute say, you. Yes, Joan and I are both in excellent shape, so we, we don't are. need to run on the elliptical. And because so we, we are, are sitting on our are, asses. Actually, we, we embody uh, <laughs> something so healthy. But for everybody who's exercising, as you listen to us, carry on. You're doing carry great. on. Indeed, you have our full support. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. We are chatting about working relationships. We're just talking about relationships. And we're talking, and we're talking to Michael Bungay-Stanier. And he is best known for a book called The Coaching Habit, which I love. It's a best-selling coaching book of the century, already recognized as a classic. And his new book, which is coming out on June 27th, but is available on Amazon to pre-order today, is called How to Work with Almost Anyone. And that's what we're talking about. Let's get to it. The Keystone Conversation. And maybe you can... Because if you go through all five of them, then people won't actually need to read the book. So, right. may- <laughs> or buy Which the I'm book. I'm okay with. Like, yeah. you know, if if they're like, I got I got all I need from this conversation, and I can build better relationships. The the mission of this book is 10 million better working relationships. I love and that. And if I can get that through a conversation with you and a million people improve working relationships because of the Joan Gary influence, then boom, I'm winning. It doesn't okay. matter about book sales so much. But if you want to buy the book, that's fine as well. <laughs> that's right. We want you to buy the book. But I want you to give people a flavor of some of the yeah. kinds of questions that serve yeah. as a foundation of the Keystone conversation. Sure. So I think there are five questions. And I've actually kind of hinted at what two of them are already. Mm-hmm. So let me just name those and kind of formally tell you what those are. These are questions number three and question four. There's the good date question. which is what can you learn from successful past relationships? Because the key thing you need to know is your past relationships will show you patterns of your future relationships. 
I know every relationship is different and every person you're working with is different, but the way you show up and the way they show up, there are just recurring patterns that will keep showing up. So you can look back at the best and go, that, (laughs) what happened there? (laughs) Right. What did they do? What did they do that contributed to this? Because we've got a natural bias to taking too much credit for the good relationships. It's like, no, it's all all me. It's like, it's not all you. (laughs) What did they do? What can you learn from that? Because telling that to the person you're in conversation with right now, that's going to be so helpful for them. And also explain what you did. So you both get to exchange what best working relationship is. So powerful. But then the bad date question is kind of the the flip of that, the dark side of that, which is what can you learn from frustrating past relationships? Because you've had frustrating past relationships. Uh You've contributed to the frustration of that past relationship. It wasn't just that the other person sucked and they were psychopathic and they were terrible (laughs) and they were bad human beings, although all of those might also be true. But you played a role in that. You, you, a relationship is a dynamic between two people. So what was your role? What was your contribution? How do you learn about yourself and how you show up in bad possible relationship, bad, bad working relationships? And just those two questions alone give so much data about what we should strive for and what we should avoid in terms of how we work well together. The, the third question I wanted to share number two on the list, was actually the one that your colleague used in terms of setting up that onboarding conversation. Because before you hit record, you told me that story and I loved it. <laughs> I might tell it again. Up and down my arm. Yeah, it was like amazing. And it was, what are your practices and preferences? So I call this the steady question. We all have patterns, ways of working, ways of using technology, ways of showing up. They are the questions that are often put on what's sometimes called a read-me document. They're kind Mm -hmm. of certainly big on, I think, Silicon Valley and maybe elsewhere as well, which is like, here are a whole bunch of things you need to know about me. And then the old pattern is, I've written out this document, I'm going to send it out, and everybody should read it, and then they'll just understand how to work. They'll just know me. Yeah, they'll just know me. I'm like, you know, nobody's going to read the document or at least read it well. Nobody's going to remember it. That's not how you form a relationship, by sending out a manifesto of how to work with me. That's ridiculous. And the content is so useful. When you're sharing about your colleague onboarding your new employee, they're like, we started with these conversations, starting with the the simplest question, which is, what's your name? What's not your name? Yes, I, I have to up. actually. Yeah, it's so I, I do want to. I do want to talk about this for just a second because I cool. think it's so. It's, it was so instructive to me. So I gave Christy a copy of the book last week. I, I got a. I got a because I have a special friend. I was able to get a <laughs> get one you ahead of time. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I know some people who know some people. And what Christy said, and we have a new staff person, and we are a fully remote organization. Yep. That's an important thing to know. There are people that work for me that I have never met in person. Mm-hmm. And so we have to work with greater intention to actually yep. know each other. And, and I, I believe we do a pretty good job of that. But anyway, so what Christy said was that the questions in this readme exercise did seem so simple, but then it just got, it went to all kinds of places. So yeah. the first question, what's my name? What's your name? What's not your name? Christy said, it sparked discussion around our backgrounds and our culture and how we grew up. And, and she went on, and, and what she said is that the introspection required to answer the question, 
helps you get to know yourself right. as well as the other person. She referred to the good at versus fulfilled exercise. Right. And it completely changes the tone of the manager direct report conversation by sharing answers back and forth. What a great testimony. Thank you, Christy. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and thank you to Crystal, our brand new employee, for, <laughs> yeah. for saying, hey, let's do this. <laughs> exactly. You know, an earlier draft, an earlier version of the book had a whole bunch of get to know yourself exercises in the first part of the book. Right. And I remember, you know, with a book, you've got to start, you've got to put your best stuff right up front. So I put the, the, the Keystone Conversation as the first section of the book and I moved the self-reflecting art questions and exercises towards the back of the book as a kind of a bonus uh, addenda. So each one of the five questions has three exercises you can use to deepen your own answers and your own awareness of yourself because it is true. It's like physician heal thyself, which is as you get to know yourself and the nuances and the subtleties about how you work and what you're good at and what you're not so great at and what your triggers are and what, where you're calm and how you bring your best and how you sometimes show up as not your best. The more you can be articulate and have language and examples and nuance around that, and the more you can teach people that, the better, I mean, it sounds obvious, the better chance they have of actually playing to all of the that's good and avoiding all of the stuff that could get a bit messy and mucky. And we so rarely have that conversation. We so quickly and easily say, ah, Joan, I've had a 20-minute podcast interview with her. I've kind of, I've, I can see her office. I can, I, I figured her out. I've kind of got, I've, I've got the vibe. And I'm like, I, I, I don't know, Joan. I need a conversation with Joan where I go, Joan, what's your name? And Joan, how do you like to work? And Joan, tell me what your best, this is the first question, which is what's your best? It's the amplify question. Yes. Like, what is your best? Because I can make up a whole bunch of stuff about Joan. She, you know, she's the CEO, she's founded a thriving organization, she's a champion in the nonprofit space, she's a coach, all of that I know. And then I make up a whole bunch of stuff about what that means about who Joan is and what that means about what she is at her best. But you know what? Rather than me making it up, how about I just ask her? <laughs> how about I have her tell her story rather than me making up her story? And how about I do the same for her rather than her making up stuff about me? How about I tell her, actually, this is what you need to know about me. I just love all this stuff. And it's it's leading me to talk about and think about the people who most often listen to my podcast who run nonprofits. Brilliant, and smart, clever, intelligent people. All Exquisite of those people taste. who yeah. are, are probably very fit because they're exercising. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we're not. Anyway, and I've probably done a handful of episodes of this podcast talking about how fundraising is not transactional, it's relational. Yeah. And if I take that up, if I kick that up even another level, one of the things yep. that I have said to you is that I think that a distinguishing characteristic of nonprofits, really a, a distinctive characteristic, is the foundational element of partnerships. Brilliant. Yeah. Right. So I think about, right, it is not fully hierarchical. I remember. Uh, Long ago, the CEO of the Girl Scouts was interviewed and, and asked, what is it like to be on top of an organization as big as the <laughs> Girl Scouts? 
And to which she replied, I'm not on top of anything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I talk often about the partnership between the board and the staff. I talk about it as a twin engine jet. I talk about board chairs and and CEOs sitting in the cockpit as co-pilots. And yes, there is some power dynamic, of course, in terms of oversight. But to think of it that way is, Mm -hmm. I think, very limiting and very, very limiting. And so I think about your relationship with donors as partnerships. I think about your relationship with volunteers as partnerships, right? That you as a nonprofit leader are fueled by what those people bring to the table because of that relationship. So I just, I wondered if you wanted to reflect on your book as it relates to some of what I see as what makes a nonprofit unique. Love that you're picking this up, Joan, and giving me a, a chance to talk about it because it's one of the things that connects the coaching habit and the advice trap, the sister book to that, to this new book, which is, it's offering up a, a way of interacting with people, but underneath it, it's offering up a way of reducing hierarchy, of sharing power, right. of dismantling some of the stuff that happens in organizations seemingly by default, where we're like somehow we get structured. And in doing that, somehow we can lose humanity in our organizations. I think organizations have a bias towards removing humanity because we're like, we want you to fit in an org chart. We want you to play a role. We want you to be a cog. We want you to be as unmessy as possible and as predictable as possible. And, you know, part of the power of coaching, which is in the end, staying curious a little bit longer, rushing to advice and action a little bit more slowly, is you ask a question And in asking the question, you give the other person the power to answer that question. It's an act of empowerment. And acts of empowerment are acts of you giving up some power to the other person. (laughs) That's why empowerment's hard, which is like, I'm all for empowerment, but I'd rather not give up any of my power. I'm like, (laughs) actually, when you ask a question, when you move from, I'm going to tell you what to do to asking a question, power shifts. It actually is a way of dismantling and playing around with hierarchy. And the same happens here. The same happens here, which is like, there there will be a power dynamic between us. There will be some form of formal hierarchy, perhaps. But what you're negotiating in a best possible relationship through a keystone conversation is an adult-to-adult relationship. Yes. And if you want to take it right back to philosophy, Martin Buber talks about two different types of relationships, an I-it relationship and an I-thou relationship. I, it is that kind of transactional relationship where you don't fully see the other human. I, thou relationships are where you both show up fully human and you see each other as fully human and you be with each other as fully human. And my work is really trying to build more of that humanity into the work we do, whether that's a nonprofit or a private organization or government. All of them can trend towards removing humanity in the service of the work. And I'm trying to put the humanity at the heart of it in the service of the work. I've never said that out loud quite like that before. I thought that was quite good. I (laughs) thought it was really good. Uh, Really good. Yeah, I mean, I believe it with all my heart, but I thank you for setting me up to figure that out and say that out loud. You're very welcome. Thanks for letting me put a microphone in front of your face. (laughs) I wonder, given the research that you've done, 
What are the implications of your work around relationships with people of different generations? So I spend a lot of time with nonprofit leaders of a certain age Mm -hmm. whose workforce is getting younger and younger, who are going to be the leaders of tomorrow. And I just, I find myself wondering if there isn't some secret sauce here in navigating what I feel is a growing unhealthy tension between, let's say, Gen X, boomers, and millennial Gen Z employees. And I've been thinking a lot about this, and I don't have the answer. I just know that the stereotypes of younger employees are unflattering and really get, they really miss what that generation is bringing to the table. And how might this framework help? You know, I think the stereotypes of all the generations are a bit unflattering. Yes. <laughs> I mean, whatever generation you, uh, you know, you're boxed into, you frame your definition to make it sound slightly better. But all of them are a bit reductive. And all of them, I think, often amplify difference rather than find commonality. Yes. And, you know, there is a way that younger folks have a different relationship to ambition and working and how that might show up. And, and power th- and power and, power. and institutions. Exactly. Yeah. They're like they're 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 more skeptical. I think they're more cynical. And I think none of that is unhealthy. I think some of that can be extremely healthy. All of us long and this is what I believe. I don't have research to back this up, but I'm going to pretend I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to pretend you do too. Yeah. I I I just think all of us long for relationships where we feel seen and we feel heard and we feel safe and we feel encouraged to learn and grow and be the best version of ourselves. Yes. And I think that's true if you're like a 55-year-old man talking to another 55-year-old man, which I might do, or it might be me talking to the 25-year-old who's just joined my organization. Yep. And I'm like, you know what? We're quite different. You're a trans woman, 25 years old, person of color. I'm none of those things. And if I can be seen and understood by her as not some sort of cliche of an old white dude, and if I can see her as fully human in all that she brings to that, then we have the best chance of a best possible working relationship. It may not, may not even work. You know, I may go, you're not a fit. She may go, I'm not a fit. But if we've given it the best chance to say, how do we build a relationship that's safe, vital, and repairable, that understanding about how we can bring out the best in each other has a greater chance of actually happening. There's something else that feels like it's central to what we're talking about today, Michael. And it is a feeling of belonging. Do I belong here, right? Right. And I'm just in the process of doing some writing about how we as a team of 20 virtual people and, you know, a online membership community of, you know, 6,000 leaders of nonprofits around the world. How do we create that sense of belonging for you know, leaders online. And and so we have been on a diversity, equity, and inclusion journey, and we have been doing that with a 
cross-cultural working group, mm-hmm. which in a group of 20 is like five of us, right? <laughs> led yeah. by two, right now, led by two millennials with the owners of the company actually taking a back seat. But the reason I raise it is I was chatting with the co-chairs of the working group yesterday. Yeah. And, you know, and we have we have changed the changed the makeup of the group and added some people, et cetera. And I said, how do you feel about the new group? And the co-chairs are white millennial, straight, cisgender with a disability, and mm-hmm. a queer multiracial woman. And they both said, we will miss Scott's voice on this working group. Scott is my business partner. He is a cisgender white man who just turned 50, who has actually, in the working group over the last year, probably felt the least quote-unquote qualified (laughs) or credible to engage in deep conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And they actually articulated his voice as uniquely powerful. He spoke a lot about his deep faith and Judaism. And there's a lot of places Scott went during those conversations that, and and it was not that I didn't agree with them, but I found it, you know, it really was an aha for me about the relationships we build and what we see in each other and learn from each other. There's two things that come to mind as you say this, Joan. The first is, if you're in a position of societal authority, like Scott sounds like he is, you know, he ticks a bunch of those boxes around status. Yes. I I tick a bunch of those boxes myself. There's a really interesting conversation to be had with yourself around how do you dissenter yourself, but but don't lose your voice altogether. Yes. Like, I I ask myself that all the time. Like, um, there's a way that... You could call it being stepping into the guru spotlight is an mm-hmm. option for me because of the coaching habit book and stuff like that. And I'm like, how do I get out of the spotlight? Yes. But how do I not lose my voice as part of that? Because I've got things to say that are useful and helpful for people. Right. The other thing I'd say is, you know, people feel more isolated and lonely than than ever, it seems. And being a person who says I'm committed to relationships and being in connection with other people is a powerful gift to the world. And knowing how to build a relationship that has a more chance of being beyond transactional and more relational is part of the way that you get to do that. We work with a, a consultant, coach, guru probably. would He would he'd probably shun the, the phrase. But <laughs> he, he actually talks about how it's going to sound kind of goofy. He says, you know, DEI work is everywhere and everything. And, yeah. and it is, in fact, I had not thought about as we began this conversation that how central what you are doing, what you're talking about, these tools are to someone's feeling of belonging to yeah. their own sense of bringing their full and best selves to the workplace. Yep. And that is just, it's, it's a gift and an investment worth making. And so I, we are just about out of time. I wanted to just ask one last question before I say thank you. And I want to just again say Michael Bungay Stanier's book is called How to Work with 
almost everyone. And it is available <laughs> on June 27th, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon. And there's a there's a, a website, Best Possible Relationship, where there are kind of bonuses and extra stuff that people can download if they want to get that. Perfect. Is that is that .com or .works? That's .com, bestpossiblerelationship.com. Yes, yeah. bestpossiblerelationship.com. I'm making a note Thanks, of that for my very self. An advice for someone who has just gotten off the elliptical, they're toweling off, <laughs> they've listened to this podcast, they're busy as hell, they have too many emails. Yeah, so everybody. <laughs> yeah, so everybody, right. One thing to get started. Well, I think... Uh, it's just a s- similar advice I give when people read the coaching habit and they're like, okay, what do I do? And often the temptation is to say, I'm going to just be more coach-like to everybody all the time, stay curious longer. And I'm like, that is a great aspiration as building the best possible relationships with everybody all the time is a great aspiration. But start with one person. Right. So I would be thinking about the one person in your sphere where you're like, I could I would like this to be a slightly better relationship than it is. And it could be one that's already really great. And you're like, I I reckon we can take it from 10 to 11. Or it could be one that feels so fundamentally broken where you're like, I've got to make this work. I've tried everything so far, so I've got nothing to lose. The worst is it could just remain really broken. Mm -hmm. Or it might be somewhere in the middle. But it's like pick a person and pick a question perhaps. You know, you don't have to ask all five. You could just pick, you know, And it goes something like this. I'd love a quick chat about how we could work better together. The question I've got for you is, when you think back on your best working relationships, what happened? Now let me tell you. Now we've heard our stories. Now what do we do about that? And one person, one question, one conversation is an experiment to say, is this stuff actually helpful for me or not? I love that. I love that. Michael Bungay-Stanier, I'm sorry it took us so long <laughs> to do an encore. Let's do this again this the next great. time your your mind generates that next book. <laughs> You're a pleasure and thoughtful and insightful, and, and the book is terrific. So thank you, thank you very much for joining us. This was delightful. Thank you so much. And for those of you who are listening from wherever you are listening— Thank you for joining us. Thank you for investing in your own professional development by having a listen to our podcast today. Thank you for the great work you do. Take good care of yourself, and we'll see you next time. So Michael and I go a whole lot deeper in a follow-up conversation we had for members of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab. If you would like an invitation to join our lab, head on over to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash Michael. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.